tick-tock, tick-tock, if you're not lucky. Teresa. Hey, Chris. How are you? Pretty good. How about you? Good. Welcome back to the Sausage of Science. It's been a while. Uh, and I don't think you and I ever got to co-host. You were always behind the scenes, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. No, this is great. And thanks for having me back. It's fun to be in this role. Of course, Miss Kara can never fill those shoes, but it's well, fun to know, have a chance to do this. I mean, the, the idea is not that anyone has any shoes to fill. It's that we're all associated with the Human Biology Association. We're all, uh, we've all been involved with the podcast. We all do public engagement with research. So as Kara and I have like ramped the podcast up to be weekly, but also the rest of our lives and our research and our teaching mm -hmm. is ramped up. You know, you hit a wall at a certain point. So we enjoy doing this, but every week can be exhausting. So we, we, I, I think I told listeners this last time, we invited all of our former producers and webmasters, anybody that's ever been involved to sort of be part of a pool so that we can sort of, it sounds like we're trying to give away work so we can share the opportunity. But I, I really do think that getting the opportunity to read the works of all of our colleagues and then talk to them about it helps us in our own jobs, like have a better grasp on the field. So I consider it an opportunity. Yeah, no, this is a great opportunity to reconnect with folks or meet people for the first time and read really exciting work in the field. So yeah, it's, love it's, that that's that opportunity is available. We even had we had you on the podcast as a guest as well. It's been like a year and a half. What 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 have you been up to? Still establishing the lab, mostly still working um, in the United States. Actually, this works well with what our guests will be talking about today, but looking at some of these dual burdens of infection um, and chronic diseases and infectious disease in the U.S. and low resource areas. Uh, so I mostly focus on parasite infection. So I've been doing some work on that in the U.S. I actually just finished up data collection last month at a, a local site uh, in southwestern Illinois and just finished up some lab work. Um, so we're hopefully going to present some of that at the HBA meetings this year. Oh, that's cool. Because I know like two episodes ago, we had Liz Malott on and she talked mm -hmm. about the microbiome work, the helminth and parasite work that you guys have been doing in Mississippi. And it's mm -hmm. funny, for my a class I'm teaching today, I was just reading Molly Zuckerman's epidemiological transition stuff on syphilis, and she's at Mississippi State. And I'm like, oh, wow, there's just so much like crisscrossing going on over there. And then I was, we were in my class, my graduate class, we're reading Dan Lieberman's Exercised. And I'm trying to remember how the topic came up, but somehow we ended up talking about bowel movements. And some of my students were just like, uh, describing how like members of their family need to take their shirt off when they go to the bathroom and just stuff like this. It was crazy. But then I started going into y'all's work on helmets and stuff and like, you know, collecting poop and do it. And all of a sudden my students mm -hmm. are like, we need a class on the anthropology of poop. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking, I was thinking of you. <laughs> I was like, oh, I have the, I have the perfect people to, to zoom in for, for, for combos about that. Yeah, next time I need to develop a new class, I'll keep that in mind. That would be <laughs> it would be fun, actually. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, not not relevant today because we're not talking about poop today, but we are talking about someone I used to have in that very class. Actually, um, when I taught 
One of the times I taught our principles of biological anthropology, our next guest was a master's student in our department, and she was in that class. And um, some of the activities that I still use today were developed by her. Who, who are we talking to, Teresa? Talking to Dr. Asha Dorsey, who is an assistant professor of anthropology at UMass Amherst. What is she up to nowadays? So she's doing uh, some really interesting work on looking at biocultural perspectives on health and human development uh, and uses a lot of really relevant frameworks that a lot of folks in HBA will be familiar with, like evolutionary medicine, disease ecology, immune function, a lot of work with child growth and development, uh, and a lot of this within a life history framework. Um, and today we are focusing on one of her chapters, that uh, recent publication looking at Biological and Ecological Impacts on Recovery from Anemia Among Peri-Urban Peruvian Children, where she's right. done a lot of her work in Peru. And she's been on, I think she's on sabbatical right now, or she was on sabbatical last semester, maybe she did a year, because she's just had a child. She's got a 10-month-old. Hopefully she's okay with me saying that, because she said, oh my gosh, in her email, thank you for reminding me to interview. I have total uh, parental brain fog. Uh, anything in that you can relate to, Teresa? Yes, I can definitely relate to the brain fog. Um, I'm currently a little over eight months pregnant with my first child, so definitely at that stage of pregnancy where I'm not getting the best sleep. So yeah. I remember, so my kids, for listeners, are 20 now, and triplets, and but I remember I was in grad school when, when they were born, and so like I was so scared. Well, they were born before I started grad school. They were one year. But I was so scared that I wouldn't be able to function because of the lack of sleep. Because sleep was so important to me beforehand, I would literally feel depressed if I didn't get enough sleep. And uh, yeah. I remember finally, looking back now, falling asleep, talking to coworkers <laughs> after my kids were born. I remember sitting there having a conversation and I dozed off and all of a sudden the voice stopped. And my eyes popped open. They're like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> well, let's see how she's doing today. How about we let her in the room? Oh, look, she pops up from under the desk. Yeah, no, it's one of those where uh, you always think that your Zoom technology is all set up and then you go in and realize that nothing is working. So yeah. you have to wiggle some wires. So here we are. <laughs> yeah, plugging in the old uh, microwave oven. Oh, yeah. You know, it amazes me for, like how long we've been in Zoom world, how it's still really complicated every time. I just forget every time I go on. <laughs> it's it's a I I I like to forget because I don't want to have this is like it's like having my high school locker combination still stuck in my head. I'm like, I really don't need to be preserving all the space for Zoom technology. We're gonna phase it out real soon, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, how have you been? Uh, you know, I'm hanging in there. It's that uh, middle of semester insanity. So it follows right after the start of the semester chaos. So hanging in there. And then my 10-month-old uh, has decided that now is the perfect time to bring down her top two incisors very slowly. So uh, not getting yes. that much sleep. <laughs> we were just talking about your, your mommy brain right beforehand. Teresa <laughs> is 10 months, 11 months? 
feels that way. Um, I'm eight eight months pregnant. So I feel congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. But I definitely, I mean, for different reasons, I can relate to that brain fog of not sleeping well. uh, And yeah, just trying to get through the day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was a treat, especially lecturing in the later stage of pregnancy. And then the fetus would just whack my diaphragm. And I just be like, (laughs) for like 10 minutes, I'm like, I got this. Just everyone hold on. Today I was we were in the lab and I was trying to pipette and the baby had really bad hiccups and it was so distracting trying to find the wells. Yeah, you're like, okay, gotta do this very. <laughs> do you talk about it while you have the experience? Because I mean, you know, reproductive physiology is in our wheelhouse. You know, as a human biologists, do do you do you share that or do you just like having? Yeah, this goes. I was so terrible. I was getting ready to say, is it like indigestion? You you pretend it's not happening, but I don't want to compare pregnancy to indigestion. That sounds like a very male thing for me to do. So yeah, it's definitely part of it. Yeah. <laughs> I know indigestion is actually part of pregnancy because I have. Yeah, my wife had three. I remember that. Yeah, um, I definitely talked about it. It was funny. The fall semester kind of lined up with my women's health across the life course class. So it was kind of the perfect opportunity to talk about kind of this reproduction and what it looks like. Um, And I remember at the very beginning of the semester being like, okay, like evolutionary hypotheses for why there's nausea and vomiting during pregnancy. And we're going into that. And I'm like, you can know all of this. And it still sucks. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, it's sort of like one of those things where I I was actually sharing with my son the other day. I'm like, yeah, I mean, we all want to have a rich life and have like peak experiences and and bad experiences because that's how being a whole human is and you need to have bad experiences to appreciate good experiences but they still suck while you're having them sorry son anyway not a podcast about me so let we have already talked a little bit about you and we we probably start off too informally when we know our guests but we should back up a little bit um and the way we always start the show and and the show is of course about how the science is made we always start the show finding out how the scientist is made so can you give us and feel free to start at the cooling of the earth your origin story how you came to anthropology and how you came to be doing the work that you're doing today Excellent. Well, you know, I can always start since the beginning of time. No, <laughs> no I won't go back that far. Um, but I will start in kind of childhood. I think this was while I would not have been able to uh, label it as kind of an anthropological interest. I think at the time, I was very interested in these kinds of ideas. So I was a military brat. So my father was in the Marine Corps, which meant every three years we would get up and move to a completely new place. I remember just going from, you know, urban dying city, Connecticut, to rural Georgia, middle of nowhere, and just being so amazed at the insane diversity of just human populations within the United States, right? Um, But also how crazy similar people are. So this idea that even though we're kind of going up and just dropping, whether I'm on a military base or what I used to call civilian world, right, out in the (laughs) off base and seeing just how people interacted with each other, what the general ideologies were, what these, like all these things that I'm looking at as a child and interacting with. Um, And I, again, I don't think I would have thought about that as connected to anthropology because I think like many people, I discovered anthropology 
in college as an undergraduate at Penn State when I just stumbled upon a class uh, that was intro to biological anthropology. And it was during that the fir very first lecture where I remember sitting there after class ended and being like, oh my God, I knew this. Like, this is exactly what I want to explore and go deeper into. Uh, so that's kind of how I found anthropology. Again, I think always this like interest in like, wow, people are really weird and different, but I'm also seeing like these strange similarities that people that are bringing us kind of as this big species together. Decided to major in biological anthropology, which was a BS degree. But yeah, this this connection between like human history and biology. And I really liked this kind of being able to look at both the social context, the environmental context, and what this means for human health or our physiology. In terms of getting to academia, that was a little bit more, I think, of a winding road. Um, I graduated from undergrad and I had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, so I took a year and worked at various coffee shops. Um, I developed a great recipe for pumpkin chocolate chip cookies that are kind of a mix between a chocolate chip cookie and a muffin top. This was a lot of downtime in these cafes, <laughs> but also in kind of playing around with with baking and, and making various coffees and, and foam art, which I've never mastered. They're all pretty ugly. I realized that I was like, I missed helping with research projects. So as an undergrad, I had an experience to help with either faculty with little things that they were doing in the lab. And then I had an opportunity to help a grad student do kind of interviews and biomarker collection. And I was like, I actually really liked that. So I started looking, right, using Google, started to, what is it, like internet stalk various people to try to figure out what people were doing currently. But I wasn't actually... I couldn't see myself as an academic at that point. So I knew like grad school because I was just really interested in learning more and I wanted more kind of life experience with data collection and how to make questions and develop hypotheses. But as an actual professor and academic, no. So I only looked at master's programs, terminal master's, and I ended up at the University of Alabama working with Jason DeCaro. I know, fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> and it was actually through that program with Jason's incredible mentorship and also um, a lot of kind of conversations with Dr. Kathy Oates about what research looks like, what my interests are, that I was able to actually start seeing myself as someone who could do this as a career, as opposed to just something that I was interested in. I was really bored working at these cafes, wanted to try something different. Doing it at a uh, at the master's level, still really enjoying it, still having a lot of questions and having incredible mentors that were able to kind of show or allow me to see myself in their positions, right? And I don't think I would have went on to a PhD if I didn't have that kind of support. And so made it to the University of North Carolina for my PhD, where I worked with Amanda Thompson and kind of finessed all these ideas about theory and methods and, and getting into a place and, and ended up here at the University of Massachusetts now, actually fulfilling kind of this weird idea goal that I had as a young master's student, which at times still feels very crazy. <laughs> and no postdoc, you got a job. Uh, yep. just, just putting a pin in that out there for everyone who thinks you have to do a postdoc. Not necessarily. Yeah, not necessarily at all. And it it uh, surprised me. I feel like this academic trajectory is just full of surprises and twists and turns. And the idea is to just roll with it. <laughs> well, I also like how you highlighted how you don't have to go straight through to to seek out your PhD and you can take steps along the way and take time to work. And what you're saying about baking really resonated with me because I, I like to bake and many of my students or other colleagues 
really like to bake. And I think it's just so reminiscent of doing lab work that some of these skills and things you do in your everyday life or other jobs can really transfer in, in odd ways uh, that in, into your lab work, into your professional life. So that was really cool to hear about. Yeah, no, and I honestly, looking back, I don't think I would have been in the right headspace or mindset to, to do any kind of graduate work right out of undergrad. I know some people who have, and they're incredible, like rock stars and could just like keep on that trajectory, but for, I needed the break. I needed to to spend a lot of time playing with cookie recipes and, and coffee and, and just trying to figure who I was and what I was interested in. Looking at your work, uh, we looked at a chapter that you wrote um, on anemia in Peruvian children. Right now, you've done a lot of field work in Peru. Uh, so great chapter, really interesting. And uh, so one of the things that stood out to me when we were reading is I liked how you set up the chapter and talking about anemia in this biocultural framework. So uh, you give some examples in the beginning about how anemia is a really interesting example of a condition that may shape social perceptions and biases of affected groups and how this has played out throughout history, you know, both before modern biomedicine where we have a better understanding of what causes anemia, but also potentially in the more recent past. So maybe you could start by defining what anemia is, but then also maybe talking a bit about these biocultural impacts that it's had throughout history. Yeah, so anemia kind of generally, right, is just these low levels of hemoglobin, which is this crazy folded up protein that's in your, your red blood cells and that uh, holds onto iron and transports it around your body. So all of your cells need iron for various functioning. And, and this little kind of hemoglobin molecule helps bring that iron around. So anemia is just looking at how much hemoglobin is in the blood. And anemia specifically is low levels of that, right? So not enough iron circulating and making it to the places where it needs to be for you to maintain just normal average functioning. In terms of the historical ideas about anemia, I mean, this is something that I'm just interested in. I find it kind of fascinating to look back in time to see how we thought about disease and illness and what our stories and narratives were around those. Um, and I also like it because it reminds me that maybe 50, 100 years from now, we're going to look back at our conversation, our current conversations and think the same thing. Wow, that's so weird, right? Why would we ever think those thoughts? Uh, so in a way, it's it's fun because I just think of it as an interesting way to see how we manage to get to the point where we are in, in thinking about different diseases and illnesses, uh, but also as a reminder that there's a lot more research to do and that this could change our perception of it in the future. But yeah, so it's it's interesting, right, this idea, especially uh, pre-19th century, where it's like fatigue, pale skin, with weakness, like these, these characteristics often connected to unrequited love. There's just no passion in this person's life, so they're just low energy, and all they can do is lie on a sofa and wait for their lover to come and find them. Beautiful stories in here. But it's interesting when I think about kind of perceptions of anemia today. So we still see fatigue, weakness, often paler skin. But if we think about it kind of in terms of who is most likely to be impacted by anemia, so small children, but also re reproductive age women. And so if we look at just in the United States, about 35% of reproductive age women are iron deficient. This often goes undiagnosed, oftentimes, right, because there's this general oversight and this idea that we don't necessarily need to test or there's just this absence of recommendations for screening. We also can ignore kind of ideas about what's normal for women, especially when they're, say, on their period. This idea of being fatigued, irritable, tired all the time is a normal, and that's air quotes, sorry, I know this is a podcast, air quotes around normal always. <laughs> 
(laughs) but it's like normal for women to feel this way. And so instead of thinking it as potentially a symptom showing an iron deficiency or something else is wrong, we just kind of accept it as something that that that's just how you're going to feel. Mm. Um, and I think while it's not as as exciting as like, you know, unrequited love and and you're waiting for for someone to come <laughs> knock at your door, we do see kind of this idea of, oh, this is this is normal. This is the narrative we've told ourselves over and over again about it being normal for women. So I'm currently reading Kate Clancy's period, and it sounds a lot like that sort of essentializing femaleness has happened and and this is uh this is new to me i i wasn't familiar with this role for anemia but it makes a lot of sense and it also it's it's the limited amount i know about anemia right i had children so i watched my wife go through trying to take iron supplements mm-hmm. and they were always super super hard in her stomach and she was always getting sick and trying trying new ones but beyond that i had zero insight into sort of the patterning of this. So I wondered if you could tell us the sort of other side of your research is you're in Peru, which I associate with high altitude adaptation research. And then we problematize that by looking at the politics and economic influences up there, but now anemia. So why Peru to choose a study? Yeah, yeah. So how I ended up in Peru is actually kind of backwards. So as a grad student, first year grad student, I was very excited about, okay, like, where do I go and do this thing called anthropology, like be in the field, field also in air quotes. Um, I took a class in public health. And during this course, the professor mentioned that they had a friend in Peru who's putting on kind of this uh, study abroad course about nutrition that was going to link up with the Instituto de Investigación Nutricional in Lima to kind of explore this idea of nutrition and health. Um, And they desperately needed a teaching assistant to go down and to help with logistics and navigate stuff. And I jumped at that opportunity, right? Any chance to kind of travel and see a different place of the world was going to be fun. And while I was there, I was like, oh, you know what? I can go around and ask people what their health concerns are. What are people actually interested in or are concerned about? And at the time, I thought I would focus more on women and women's reproductive ecology. But I talked to a lot of women and they ended up being mostly moms. And all of them were deeply concerned about anemia and not for them, but for their kids. They wanted to address like this thing that they had heard over and over about that's many of them had experienced while pregnant anemia and they knew that it was bad and that it was especially bad for kids when they were growing and developing. So, so many people were like, I wanna know more about our anemia and I wanna know more about how to prevent it in my kids so that they can have an incredible life. Um, so I was like, oh, great. When you are doing anthropology, you can make your life so much easier by studying things that people want to talk about. <laughs> and are interested in. So I was like, huh, what is this thing, anemia? Let me, like, when I returned to the U.S., I was like, let me look into it. And and in that kind of deep lit review, I discovered all these kinds of ideas about iron deficiency and anemia, this connection to evolutionary medicine, this idea that that some manifestations of disease may act as adapted defenses against other types of illness, right? How does this look in the body? Where is this at? And so I was like, oh, 
this is fascinating. First, people want to talk to me about it, and they'd be willing for me to hang out in their houses, eat a lot of delicious uh, Peruvian food, play with their kids, talk to their kids about kind of health and these ideas, while also kind of addressing these broader evolutionary theory about kind of health and, and iron homeostasis. So that's how I ended up with Peru. <laughs> um, it's also interesting because Peru does have very high rates of anemia, and a lot of this can be attributed to high altitude. So being at higher altitude, right, you're going, you're not going to produce as many red blood cells. That's why a lot of people feel short of breath or dizzy uh, when you go from kind of low altitude to high altitude. But this is interesting because all of this happened in Lima, which is Peru's capital city. That's on the coast and it's not high altitude. So why are we seeing this incredibly high rate of anemia when, when altitude is not part of the, the conversation or part of the environment? And I also thought it was interesting because there's a lot of work that was done looking at iron deficiency anemia and its connection to malaria rates and how that this can actually be advantageous in areas of malaria. Peru does have malaria, but not necessarily present in Lima. So what was going on in this capital city that was, was pushing for high rates of anemia in children? Do tell. Really interesting. Okay. <laughs> wait, 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 don't stop. What is going on? Well, I do. I want to say even what made it more interesting was kind of these like national rates of anemia, but also if we look at city and location, still very high in Lima. And I also found it fascinating because there have been decades, decades of interventions for anemia, uh, trying to reduce rates, especially in kids. So iron supplementation in syrup form and sprinkle form on top of food. So how can we do this? So decades of it. And in one community that some argue is not part of Lima, and some people argue that it is, all right, it's a little bit of a makeshift district where a lot of internal migrants go when they're trying to move to Lima, the, the city of economic promise, of jobs, of the ability to increase your social status in this area, in San Juan de Lurigancho. And so intervention after intervention, but in this community, anemia rates were increasing instead of decreasing. So that was fascinating to me, right? If we're throwing iron at this problem, the idea is that some of it would be absorbed and that we would solve this, this nutritional deficiency. Peru was not seeing that. Part of like what we focus on in this paper and in your work looking at immune activation as part of this puzzle of what might be going on. Uh, and so you, you alluded to this in, in your earlier comment just a minute ago, but you talk about how in evolutionary medicine, one way to think about this could be these trade-offs. And you have a line in your in this book chapter, we talk about how in environments with high levels of endemic infectious disease, restricted iron intake may protect against infection. Uh, so can you unpack that statement a little bit? And why might that be the case? Why might this be maybe viewed as adaptive or somewhat beneficial in these cases? Yeah, so here it's it's kind of fun to think of actually like a fever. So if you are infected, there's a lot of inflammation and your body is responding, you're going to start having a fever. And the idea here is that your body is going to produce extra heat to try to kill off these, these pathogens in your body to reduce their ability to grow, to proliferate, and to do harm to you. But at the same time, you don't want the fever to be that long or that high because then you will start harming yourself. You'll hurting your cells and seeing what you're doing. So seeing kind of how our body responds to infection and inflammation and in a way to prevent pathogen growth or proliferation and, and advancement of disease, but also knowing what these boundaries are and when these kind of adaptive defenses to pathogens may start causing more harm to you than you would initially want in a response. 
And I think of kind of iron as similar to this. So when your body detects an infection or, or inflammation, one of your innate immune responses. So the first thing your body does before it even starts to recognize what exactly is causing the inflammation uh, is to sequester iron. So to take iron that's floating around and to hide it away uh, in your cells, making it harder to get. Um, and you also start decreasing iron absorption. So the idea is trying to limit the amount of iron. And this is because you need iron to function for all those cells, for all the physiology that you're doing on a daily, hourly, minute basis. But also pathogens need iron, many pathogens, bacteria, all right, um, and some evidence now that viruses, some viruses need iron as well. So this idea that you're you're infected, there's a pathogen in there, it's going to want to divide, it's going to want to reproduce, and it's going to need iron to do it. So it's looking for iron in your system. But if you've hidden it away, you've made it harder to identify, and you're not absorbing it as much, actually decreasing this level of iron in your body might inhibit the pathogen's ability to grow and proliferate. Okay, so you're blowing my mind a little bit here. So let me let me back up a little bit. You're interested in anemia. I'm starting to wrap my brain around this, but your the measure that you use is CRP or C-reactive protein, which is an inflammatory marker. Can you tell us sort of like why you chose that and and sort of again, I guess help me connect the dots? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so CR, uh, CRP or C-reactive protein, exactly that. It's an, a marker of inflammation. So supposedly when CRP uh, levels increase in your blood, it's an it helps us identify inflammation or this potential infection that's happening. CRP is interesting and useful when you're looking at kind of uh, systems that are going to respond to to inflammation or need to respond relatively quickly because it's an acute phase protein. So what this means is that it the levels change pretty rapidly. You produce it very quickly in response to a lot of other things. There's a lot of hand waving too. I talk with my hands. And so it's released very quickly at the start of an infection or an inflammatory condition, and then it decreases rather quickly. So there's a number of different inflammatory markers, and they're all incredibly useful depending on what question you're asking or what you're trying to get at. But I I like CRP because it's such a quick responder to this inflammatory condition. Just a clarifying question. Is the prediction that the infectious agent is sucking up the iron and you're looking for infection to predict that they will be iron deficient? Uh, yes, the theory, right, the, how I would hypothesize this, right, is in conditions where you have high immune activation, so something's going on, there's inflammation, whether it's a pathogen or something else that's causing this, then your body is going to react by sequestering or decreasing iron absorption, so it's going to lower the iron in, in your system. So as you see an increase in markers of inflammation, you'll see a decrease in iron level. And then you add a wrinkle to this in the study where you look at iron supplementation. So adding iron into the system. Uh, So that was really interesting to consider in this complex associations that you're mentioning here. So you you highlight in this book chapter how when you look at the supplementation, that even though there were really high rates of adherence to treatment reported by your participants, that many of the children with anemia failed to respond to the iron supplementation. You said about half of the children didn't respond. Um, So why do you think that is in terms of what you just explained with the pathogens and the immune activation? 
Yeah, yeah. And this, I think, is interesting, right? So out of my sample, half the kids were anemic and half the kids were not. And then of the anemic children, half responded to iron supplementation treatment and half didn't. So I thought that was actually, didn't plan for that, but it was lovely numbers that worked out. It makes it easier to see. And I want to emphasize that adherence to, to iron supplementation, which was thick syrup, that was supposed to be given to the child twice a day, once in the morning and once in the evening for four weeks, so over a month period. Why I want to just highlight that adherence to this was actually very high, a lot higher than I imagined and many others thought would be possible is because when I talked to, when I returned to Peru after I had talked to moms and they were like, anemia, anemia, we want to know more about it. I went back for a summer and talked to a lot of people on the public health side of, of things, trying to develop these interventions and, and try to lower rates of anemia. And when I talked about the, the increasing rates of anemia in San Juan de Lurigancho, so despite decades of interventions and a current one that was happening, why would we see this? Uh, what did they think? And all of them told me it was because moms were not giving the iron treatment to their children all of them, right? So it's not what we're doing to solve the problems that people aren't doing it. They're not behaving the way that we want them to. And that's why we're seeing increased rates. So it was fascinating to me to do this study and find out that actually treatment rates were incredibly high. Very few moms ever forgot. And when they did, they remembered to give it later. So the children were still getting the iron just later in the day, as opposed to say, usually moms would forget in the mornings. Despite having high burdens on their day, right? So I think these women are working. There's often multiple children in the home. They have to travel very far to work. Um, they have to get their kids ready to school. Um, another interesting thing in interviews with, with caregivers was child personality was a big uh, factor. And I think anyone who has a child that did not want to take medicine when you had to give it to them knows that that is definitely something that you need to consider. So I just want to highlight so many burdens and, and things that would lend itself to forgiving, I would think, parents who forgot to give this treatment to their kids. And despite all that, they were still providing the treatment to their children. <laughs> so I am was very excited that that was not a, an explanation for why we saw such high rates. After Alex Bruis and Amber Wudish's great book on stigma, and we just had her here, it, it reinforces how important it is to let's not start by just blaming the people for not doing the thing that we want them to do and question the approach. I think that's exactly right when thinking about kind of stigma and in, in this particular context too, right? A lot of public health officials are upper class. They they call themselves Lemenios, right? Their families have been in Lima for quite some time. Families living in San Juan de Larigancho are internal migrants from the Andes or Amazon. Uh, they tend to have lower socioeconomic status. Um, and while many of the mothers and families I talked to identify as mestizo, so uh, mixed of Spanish and indigenous descent, when you talk to when I talk to a lot of the public health workers, they would just say indigenous, right? These people are indigenous. They don't understand the importance of, of public health measures. Uh, there's a lot of alcohol alcoholism, abuse in these communities, right? So there's a lot of, I would say, kind of classism and racism also deeply embedded in these assumptions that people make about patients and, and whether they're adhering to treatment or not. A uh, widespread problem, of course, that we're familiar with, but it's lovely to hear from you that the mothers were not, like to get the evidence that that was wrong. You also found that children who were higher in their weight for age, their Z-scores, were, were more likely actually to respond to the iron supplementation. So I wonder what sort of mechanisms might explain that. 
Yeah, so this was interesting. There's a lot of work um, out there documenting that, right? So we usually think of inflammation, uh, inflammatory conditions as associated with infections, so like a pathogen. Um, but we're, some people are finding evidence that actually increased overweight and obesity also increases inflammatory markers. Uh, so here I was interested in kind of, okay, if we look at both kind of pathogens, but also other things that might be causing inflammation like overweight and obesity, maybe with higher weight for HZ scores, we would find greater chance of being anemic and a lower um, chance of responding to treatment. But that's actually not what I found in my study. Um, I found that higher weight for HZ scores, the children that had these were more likely uh, to respond to iron supplementation. Um, and this is this is interesting because it's it's telling us that something is going on other than just kind of inflammatory markers. So here, um, it could be right that they have more energy, their immune system can respond to infection a, a lot quicker, um, that there's other abundance of vitamins and minerals going on that also help with the immune system and decreasing kind of inflammatory patterns. So there's a lot that can be going on with that result, which I find really interesting. So even though we would sometimes see a higher inflammation with uh, overweight and obesity, we're not necessarily seeing that here, and it's not necessarily connected to to iron or to anemia. Um, what I love about this too is that moms predicted this. Uh, when I was talking to moms, it was like, okay, tell me about a healthy kid, right? What do healthy kids look like? And they're like big. They, they eat a lot. They have great appetites. Um, a lot of concerns about uh, the health of their child came from, my kid is too small. They need to be bigger. Bigger is healthier, which was fascinating, right? <laughs> hearing moms talk about this and then seeing results that go against my own predictions, but totally supported what they were telling me in the field. That's super interesting. And it really reminded me actually of Sam Erlocker's work in the Schwar, because he had a similar finding um, with his work looking at growth patterns in kids, where he found that the children that had, I'm um, using skin folds, looking at, at fat, that children with greater levels of body fat, which he uses as a proxy of energy reserves, seem to be able to avoid growth inhibiting impacts of inflammation specifically, because it's you know so energetically pricey. It's like having that reserve as a buffer was, was really important. So I thought that was a really cool alignment of what you were finding and what he found in Schwar kids, or some maybe a similar context in terms of the pathogen load and the immune responses. So yeah. That was super interesting. No, and it's it's it was fun too because it was like okay higher weight for HZ scores and it was like let me look at this further let, let me look at like body composition and connection to responding to iron supplementation and and what this looks like so I even kind of broke this down into two different measures of body composition so body mass index for HZ score BMI as well as weight to height ratio so what is that uh, abdominal circumference and what is that ratio to to each child's height. Um, and it was interesting because the, the, the predictions maintained, right? So the higher BMI Z score, or the higher weight to height ratio increased the odds of the child responding to, to iron supplement, supplementation treatment, but in different, by different rates, right? And I thought that this is interesting because it tells us that it's not necessarily just weight, but body composition, right? So what are we actually looking at and how might a different weight and weight distribution impact these ideas of inflammation and inflammatory responses. That actually kind of leads into my next question that I had, because I thought one of the sentences when you discuss your results that really stood out to me was you talk about how your original predictions, you predicted that high immune activation as measured by CRP before treatment wouldn't predict the response to supplementation, but that a high immune activation at the end of treatment 
would be associated with whether the children responded to treatment or not. And you said this was due to the allostatic nature of iron regulation and that you're finding support of this hypothesis. So I was just wondering if you could explain that a little bit and specifically maybe what you mean by the allostatic nature of iron regulation and what this finding might suggest about the relationship between systemic inflammation and anemia. When I talk about kind of the allostatic regulation, it's allostasis. So this process of maintaining homeostasis or or your optimal functioning, how do you maintain this through adaptive change? And I often like, I like metaphors here. So I like thinking about kind of this allostatic nature, allostasis connected to almost thinking of like riding a plane. And when you're on a plane and suddenly there's some turbulence, right? You, You freak out a little bit, but it's actually, you want that to happen. You want there to be some fluctuation because it's the plane responding to wind patterns and you want it to adjust because if the plane didn't, it would just start cracking and breaking, et cetera. <laughs> but like a lot of things, you you want it to flex and move, right? To have that kind of turbulence, but you don't want too much for too long because then things go too crazy and we don't have a flight that's within normal optimal function, right? And I think about that in terms of kind of anything physiological is that you want your body to shift and change. You want it to, to respond to different environmental clues or context because if you're the same all the time, things would just go horribly wrong. You need to react to things that are available or not available, et cetera. And that's that's what I think makes human our bodies just interesting <laughs> is that we're very hard to, to pinpoint what this looks like and what is optimal and what could be optimal for one person doesn't necessarily mean optimal for another. So what does this look like at a population level? And then populations in different contexts and different places are going to have those different things as well. So really thinking about what what are the changes we need to make? What are what's the slight turbulence that we need to see in order to maintain a good function, to maintain those kind of optimal things? So here it's it's with all the stuff that can go into iron regulation or, or anemia status is is okay. So inflammation, but responding to inflammation how are all these different interdependent elements and how do they they shift as things change? So here, when I talked about uh, high immune activation before treatment, wouldn't necessarily be predictive of, of responding or not responding. It was because we have a month of treatment and we would want things to shift. I would expect things to shift over that month, especially because CRP is so changes so rapidly. So something that's pointing to inflammation at the beginning might not necessarily mean that there's inflammation at the end. Uh, so here, seeing higher uh, markers of immune activation at the end when I was both testing hemoglobin, uh, but also after a month of iron, iron supplementation, I would expect that that would have a bigger impact on that measure then than something that was happening one month previous. So sticking with your plane metaphor, because it's nice, right? You've got malaria, you've got infectious disease in general, chronic conditions, and anemia. But it's not really anemia that we're talking about. It's iron. Iron has an important role in the running of the plane, right? So what other systems on that plane, to use that metaphor, right, or in this complexity, are going to be influenced by iron or how iron responds to infectious disease and and in in this dynamic? Like, what other pieces in this dynamism are we currently missing? Oh, probably so many. (laughs) 
I mean, humans are just so complex and we have the, the biological and physiological functioning, but then we also need to take in the context in which they are. How do we even understand anemia and how, are, how does that influence treatment or, or whether we feel sick or not sick? Anemia interacts with a lot of other things. So a lot of chronic conditions, it can exacerbate or, or help. We also see a lot of anemia impacting kind of treatment efficacy, not just for anemia itself, but other things as well. It's connected to other uh, nutritional markers, other vitamins and minerals. Right. So it's just so incredibly complex in these connections. And then and we we see this or I've been talking about this in terms of kind of infection of pathogens. And then we touch on other things that could cause inflammation like overweight and obesity. But what else out there could cause an inflammatory response? And there's some interesting stuff with just psychosocial stress and what that does to your body and how that, that how that's handled or, or not handled uh, well. So it's it's just an incredible complex question. And, and that's kind of why I like anthropology is that we accept that. I remember having a conversation with someone in microbiology and they were like, but these questions are too complicated. There's so many variables. You should just work in mice and have mouse models. And I was like, yes, but that's not what I want to do. That's not interesting to me, right? If I know that X equals Y equals whatever, that's fascinating and good to apply and to work, but mice aren't people and people are incredibly complex. And that's why I liked working with people to begin with. <laughs> That's such an important point, just as human biologists, you know, it's acknowledging that it's going to be basically impossible to take into account every single factor that could be impacting, but still the relevancy of our work in terms of at least highlighting the complexity and starting to get at these questions and hopefully generating the bigger data sets across different settings to try to answer these questions. So it's such a good point. Um, and actually, I had a, a follow-up, which might be a, a little unfair given how complex this issue is and how many factors go into this. But I was wondering, based on your findings, I mean, in terms of the adherence that you saw and these patterns with CRP, if, you, if there were any next steps or recommendations you might make, either more broadly, considering how anemia is a global problem, like you talked about, especially with women and children, um, but maybe also just a Peruvian study said, if you could talk to those Peruvian health officials, like what's, what recommendations you might make based on this complexity for next steps and trying to design better intervention patterns to try to help the, the impacted communities? Yeah, I mean, I think my recommendations could be great for anything and, and anything related to health in any context, et cetera, is that we need to desperately address biases in healthcare, not just with who we think is doing treatment and who isn't, but who do we listen to and why? When are we listening and when aren't we listening? And I think connected to this is if we really want to improve nutritional status, we really want to improve health status, we need to look at and, and fix social and environmental contexts that people are living, working, and playing in. We need humans, we, royal we, need clean water, proper housing, food access. All these things are going to work together, right? Again, all these interrelated elements uh, in order to improve just health for children, for adults, for communities, for populations. So in some ways, it's incredibly easy to say this. Um, I know that these are the things that are expensive. They take a long time, right? We like to see, we like to feel like we're doing help and seeing immediate, immediate results, but we need to let go of that, right? And really look at kind of structural, social, and environmental change. I really enjoyed listening to your process of like interviewing the women, find out what they are concerned about i i want listeners to put a pin in that like as as great research design so thank you for sharing that our last question is going to bring down the intellectual level a little bit we're going to find out how you have fun you're obviously a gregarious person i'm sure you're fun in front of the classroom 
you're going to be fun at the HBA talent show next year. When we can convince our organizers to actually put one on. If that happens, what talent are you going to share with us all? I think there are two options. And I would need to brush up on these skills because as a new parent, I don't have too much time for this. Uh, for any hobbies, really. I can change a diaper really fast now, but I, I wouldn't put that in the in the, the talent show. I think one... That would go with our anthropology of poop conversation that we started today with before you came on. But yes, go ahead. Oh, tons to add to that, right? An idea that, that wasn't described here, but I'm looking into is how does the intestinal microbiome interact with inflammatory markers and iron status? And what is giving someone a huge bolus of iron due to this... this um, this gut ecology and how does that shift things? Dramatic stuff. Um, So so a lot to talk about. I love talking about poop. All right. It's not waste at all. It's incredibly important and beneficial to look at, but I I won't. It sounds like this class needs to be developed. There's a lot to work with here. It really is. As far as as talents, um, one, it would be, all right. So one summer when I was nine, I found a book in a library about elaborate napkin folding. Uh, so I was did not have a lot of activities. This is before a lot of, you know, pre-planned, scheduled child activities. I memorized that book and I would need to brush up on this talent. But I used to make elaborate things out of just napkin folding, those cloth napkins that you see. So I would, I think if I had the time to brush up, I would bring a lot of cloth napkins or steal some from the, the hotel or various restaurants and, and design some very elaborate uh, tableaus with those. The other option, again, would be to do full interpretive dance to Abba's Fernando. <laughs> I have, I do it a lot in the car, so I have a lot of it from the waist up, but I would need to think about how to incorporate legs, I think, in that interpretive dance. Yeah. I love both of those. And as some, like when I, my kids have uh, table chores, they still do this. And when I taught them table chores, I made them fold the napkins because um, we just pull off a paper towel, but I think it looks ugly. And I want it, I'm like setting the eating together. It's not just a family experience, like it's, it's aesthetic too. So now they like to bastardize other people for not folding their napkins, which I just love. So that's a great talent. I love both of those. Asha, it's been great having you on the show. If you want to be found by listeners, potential grad students, whatever, how can they find you and who do you want looking for you? Yes, um, I definitely am interested in graduate students who love the complexity of just humans and, and are willing to help untangle these these connections with me. But Googling me is a great way to find me, but also reaching out via email. So that would just be a Dorsey at umass.edu. Um, and I'm actually relatively quick to reply to emails, mostly because I use it as a productive procrastination method for other writing. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm Chris. I'm one of your hosts. You can find me at Chris underscore LY. And I want to thank my co-host today, Teresa Gildner. You can find her. Email is probably best. It's just my last name, Gildner, G-I-L-D-N-E-R at wustl.edu. And I know the world hates Twitter now, so I should probably give other things. But once upon a time, that was the way we advertised ourselves. But basically, you can look any of us up. The Sausage of Science is now on Spotify as well as iTunes. And it's always been on SoundCloud and on our website. And I want to thank our producers for the great work they do. And thank you all. Actually, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, well, thank you guys. It's been great talking to you. We'll see you at the meeting. Take care.